You know, I want to share one of my favorite stories this morning from probably my favorite category of story, which many of you know is that truth is stranger than fiction. I have, I've shared this one in the past. It's been a number of years. It illustrates such a great point that I have to give it to you again, and maybe you won't remember. Perhaps it's been long enough. It's about five or six years ago that the Seattle Post ran this story. Quote, she grabbed a bag of apricots, dried apricots, opened them, ate a couple, put it back on the shelf, and the security guard watched her do it, says a store official about an incident at a Safeway grocery store in Everett, Washington. Now, the guard labeled it shoplifting, and he grabbed the culprit, her name was Savannah, and took her and her shopping companion, who didn't see the incident happen, to the back of the store for interrogation. She's banned from the store and we're pressing charges, the guard told them. And she needs to sign this form saying she understands she can't come back to Safeway ever again. Now the problem is, is that Savannah can't read or write. She's four years old. <laughs> True story. But the guard made her scribble something that was like her name, whatever that was. And her companion in the store was her father. Never saw it happen. So when corporate officials heard about this, the security guard was fired. And Savannah's parents received an apology. And the Safeway spokesman says this, Our policies on shoplifting are intended to protect our customers, but they are built on common sense. And everyone understands what common sense is. Well, obviously not everyone <laughs> understands common sense. Security guard, I think, struggled with that idea a little bit. And on this final Sunday of Advent, we want to consider together the last of the four traditional themes. So far, we've talked about joy and hope. Last week, we talked about peace, and this morning, obviously, you've, you've heard it already. We want to talk about love. You know, love. That force that makes the world go around. That, uh, that one thing that is all you need, according to the Beatles in 1967. That condition which Plato described as a grave mental disease. Or George Bernard Shaw defines as a gross exaggeration of the difference between one person and everyone else. Love, that emotion that both exhilarates and terrifies, that expression that both thrills and frustrates. Love. Everyone knows what love is, right? Okay, maybe not. And therein lies, I think, the challenge for us as we, we have been tackling together, or at least I, I hope, I like to think that we've been tackling together in this Advent season, to understand these traditional themes through the lens of the Christmas story. To, uh, to look at the story, both in its narrative as well as what lies behind the story, to define joy and hope and peace and love as they really are. Because, honestly, it doesn't really matter what I think love means. It doesn't really matter what you think love means. As people of God, we need to dial into what is love really as it is defined biblically as, as it comes, finds its origin in 
the character of our God. So that is where we've been, looking at each of these themes as they are defined in the character of who God is and how he reveals himself to us. And so this morning we're going to do just kind of a, a back to the basics look at the theme of love. Because it's familiar territory, knowing the Christmas story as well as we do. And yet, I think when I, when I consider the theme of love through the familiar, there is, there's great potential here to be absolutely stunned. My hope is that you will leave here joining with me in where I have been all week long. There's just been this incredible sense of, wow, as I look again at the Christmas story and, and the love that we understand that comes in that story. You remember the angels. Matthew gives us... Uh, the story of the angel coming to Joseph in a dream. He's learned that his betrothed is pregnant. And the angel says she's pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. And that he is to give him the name Jesus because this baby will save his people from their sins. Joseph was skeptical, to say the least. When Mary came and told him the story, that, that's my guess anyway, and so the angel came along as uh, reassurance. Yes, it, it, it really is. And, and then, of course, there's the angel that, that tells Mary that she's found favor with God. She would have a baby boy and should give him the name Jesus, for he would be called the son of the most, God, the most high. He would, he would sit on the throne of David and his kingdom would never end. Do you suppose that that was a little bit mind-numbing to a 13 or 14-year-old girl? Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That word, because points to the reason for the name, Jesus. It's a derivative of of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And so Jesus, we know, again, familiar, born to be a Savior. And then there are the angels in Luke 2, another angel announcement. We've seen this one. To the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And again, there's that word, Savior, linked with the baby. And this angel announcement also, as we learned early on, ties in the position of Messiah, that is Christ, which means the Anointed One, and also describes Him as Lord, which means Sovereign, the the One who is, is in control. So, let's just have some fun for a minute or two. Based on these announcements, what do we know about angels? What strikes you? 
Oops. I think that they would be. Yes, Sam, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Often, uh, you know, the words are fear not that come with the announcement as well. There's reason. What else? What else do we know? Karen? They bring instructions. They bring messages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can I ask where those might come from? Direct. Coming from God. It's, it's probably safe to assume that angels spend time in the presence of God, yes? You look at the book of Job, those telling first two chapters, and, and we see that it was, it was the day when the angels came and presented, them before, presented themselves before God. So, so the angels are in the presence of God. The angels... Do God's bidding. Okay, here's where I need for you to to just use your imagination for a little bit, okay? I want you to think that for somehow, some way, you were in the presence of these angels that made these announcements. Perhaps you were with them before they were going to make the announcement. Perhaps you were with them after they had made the announcement. And so you've had the opportunity to listen to their conversations, Are you there? Are you, are you with the angels and you've been listening to their conversations? Tell me what it is they're excited about. What, it, what is it that, that they are amazed about? Can you hear any comments? What do you think? Thank you, Dixie. Yeah, said very respectfully, of course. <laughs> yeah. What else? Anything else strike you? Thank you, Jim. <gasps> exactly. For who? Yes. Yeah. I, the story is too familiar, folks. We we need to we need to just kind of mull some of the nuances a little bit. I, I, I think that that's very, very reasonable that the angels would go, what? For them? Are you kidding, Diane? What do you think? Yeah, they might have not known this for a long time. from the presence of God with a message that is just is so so outrageous uh, they you know the angels had to be excited about what God was doing and and at the same time maybe confounded over the details of the plan and uh, what was behind it so we're going to stand and read together a couple of texts this morning you've already heard a bit of these texts. They were woven into our, our Advent candle reading this morning. 
There are two texts by the same author. It's, it's John, the apostle. And in the first one, in his gospel, he records Jesus talking with Nicodemus. You remember the, uh, the ruler, the religious ruler. Nicodemus had all kinds of, of questions about, well, you know, how, how can a person be born again? And, and, and Jesus was saying some, some really challenging and significant things to him about the nature of faith and the nature of God, and, and in particular, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he reminds him of a time in Israel's history from their 40 years in the wilderness when, when the people were complaining and they were just moaning and groaning about not having bread and not having water and they had moaned and complained often in the wilderness. And the story goes that God sent poisonous snakes among them as a response to their whining and their complaining. Many of the people died. But then he instructed Moses to make an image out of bronze, an image of a snake, to put it on a pole, and so that anyone who had been bitten by a snake should look at that snake on the pole and live. There's an image there. So let's stand and read together from John's Gospel, and then we'll read a second text from his, uh, his first letter near the end of the New Testament. So, words of Jesus, here we go. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Okay, and then we read from 1 John together. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Ever hear those verses before? John 3.16. Probably one of the first verses that at least those of us who, who think we grew up in the church, I think I may have been born in the church, uh, one of the earliest verses that, that we have, have known. God's love, God's gift of love, given to a world that was not overly receptive to that gift. So, let's, uh, let's put up those next statements, Karen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A key truth. This, John also says in his letter, is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
So I want you with your neighbor for just a couple minutes to talk about God's love. What do you hear in these verses? What do you hear, if, if you're thinking of, of the, the rest of the text that we read, what do you hear about God's love, and how would you describe it to someone who's never heard of it? Talk to your neighbor about that for a couple minutes. What do you hear? How would you describe it to somebody who's not heard of God's love? Okay, we ready? Are you still on task, or have you digressed? <laughs> so, what did you hear from your neighbor? Or what did you share with your neighbor? Things that you hear about God's love and, 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 and how you would describe that, explain that, at least in part, to someone who hasn't heard of God's love. Universally offered, conditionally received. Okay, universally offered, conditionally received. Okay, what else? You were all talking. That is a wow statement, Steve. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we'll come back to that a bit near the end. What, what else? What else struck you from these familiar texts? Good, good. Gift. Hmm. Very good. Very good. <laughs> it's a gift that we didn't want. Say more. Hmm. Good. They sent the gift back. Good perspective. It really is. Yeah. Good. Sacrificial. Yeah. Mmm. That is powerful. Yes. I see that little hand. <laughs> God is cool. And what we want to do is we want to understand just how cool his love is that we're talking about in this season or has had the opportunity. God's insistence that the gospel go out, <clears throat> excuse me, to all of humanity, that the passion that he has for lost people. <clears throat> I think if there, if there is a Christian truth that is, dare I say, more significant than, than the others, I, I'm always hesitant to, to put it in those terms, but I want to say that this morning, that it, it is this truth that John says to us, God God is love. We didn't, we didn't read those words from his letter, but woven into the context of that passage, John says a couple of times, God is love. And we're talking about a perfect God, and so the love that God has and gives is a perfect love because it is flowing from his perfect character. It is, it is a love that does not stop in its pursuit. You've mentioned the pursuing love of God. It's, it is a love that, that loves even when it's rejected, when, when the gift is sent back or we try to send it back. <clears throat> and so in our, our Advent journey, as we're defining these themes, I just think it's so important for us to to really be clear in our understanding of the love that we're talking about in this season. Because human sentiment and the season itself can cause us confusion about what love really is. Think about yourself in this season. I'm guessing 
that some of you, as you're doing your Christmas shopping for gifts, would rather be doing something else. Is that a possibility? Thank you, Steve, for that honest experience. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes there, is a, there can be a moment in the season where you're, you're excited. And I, I think I've had those once or twice in my life, you know, where you're excited about this, this gift that you're looking for, just the right gift for that, that person. But how often do we find ourselves wishing that we just didn't have to do this? And so gift giving becomes sort of an obligation on our part. Uh, and, and there's just a lot of human emotions that factor into the Christmas season that, that I think can cloud our perspective on <clears throat> what true love is. God did not give his son grudgingly. God didn't, I don't think, feel an obligation to, to give his son. So, back to the basics. Let me just, let me just point out a few. You know these. You're verbalizing some of them. But I think it's important for us to go away this morning remembering this amazing truth and hopefully with a sense of, wow. Truth number one, God loved us first. John's pretty clear about that. He says, not that, that we loved God, but that God loved us. Did you know that God loved you before you ever loved him? And my suspicion is is that most of us will say, yeah, I know that. I know that, that God loved me first. Well, here's another thing that we know. We know that tomorrow, those mountains out there will still be there. And the next day, they'll probably be there then too. And... The fact is that we know things in that way. We know things that become to us a, just a constant and a familiar. And here's what I find is that as much as I know that the mountains are there, that I don't really appreciate them unless I stop and take a moment and look again and am captured by the beauty and the wonder of those mountains. And I would suggest to you that that is what we need to do when we think about God's love and Him loving us first. He loved us first. Before we were ever born, there was a place in the heart of God that loved us. God loved us and pursued us before we ever loved and responded to Him. I think it's important for us to rehearse that truth in our own lives and and with one another. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul, quoting from the Psalms and the Prophets, he said this, making a case for faith and the importance of faith in Christ as God's gift of salvation. Paul says, there is no one righteous. And when Paul says that, he's thinking about his own people primarily. 
Paul, coming from a Jewish history, the Jewish context, he's thinking about those who have the law of God and those who have been set apart from all of the other people on earth. And Paul is thinking to himself, there is no one righteous, starting with his own people, and then beyond that, the Romans, the Gentiles. There's no one righteous, Paul wrote, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Paul says, all have turned away. I think this is so important for us to remember because if we did not earn God's love by loving him first, then it seems to me that we cannot lose God's love. We've all faced failures, have we not, as, as God's people, in, in trying to live our lives faithfully before him. <clears throat> we fail. We stumble. We fall. And the enemy is always the first one in line to tempt us with the possibility that, oh, you've really done it this time. You know, you've screwed up bad enough that there is no way that God is going to continue to love you. But wait, but wait, he loved me before I loved him. Before I even knew about him, he loved me. God's love is not earned, and God's love is not lost. How does God love like that? Because John says God is love. That is his nature. God loves And that is what perfect love does. It pursues and it never stops loving. God loved us first. It was his love that pursued us. It was because he opened his great heart to us that we are capable of responding to him in love. You see how this truth grows God and makes him big? We need to make God and his love big in this Advent season. There's a second truth kind of plays off of this first one, really. God loved us when we weren't very lovable. Well, at least I wasn't. You guys probably were, but I was not. You know, not only does Paul say there's no one righteous, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, they've all turned away, but he talks about us as sinful, talks about us as people who have rejected God, that humanity has rejected God as creator, rejected God as God. And Paul says that even so, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever known someone who says, I couldn't possibly be loved by God because I've done this or that. I've lived such a horrible life that there's no way that God could love me. There's no way that God could forgive me for this or for that. We've probably all known people at some some place in their life where they have they have verbalized that. They they can't they can't get cleaned up enough in order for God to love them. That's the point of the gospel. None of us can. 
You know, the scripture is, is pretty clear that even in our best moments and our best efforts, our righteousness is like filthy rags. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He loves us when we aren't lovable. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I hope that that wows you in this Advent season. You know, and, and let's be honest. I think, I think sometimes we forget that, that we were undeserving of, of God's love, which might be the reason that sometimes there are folks with whom we struggle to love. Okay, you never do? Never experience that. God loved us when we weren't lovable. God loves them when they aren't lovable. And, and the humbling truth is that he loves those who I think are the worst every bit as much as he loves me. There, there, are, no, there are no degrees of love in the character of God. Now, certainly there are degrees of, of blessing towards those who respond or do not. But God's love is God's love. God loves those who I think are the worst every bit as much as he loves me. That is humbling and worthy of wow. But we're only going to wow over that when we really understand that we weren't lovable, that by God's standard, we were not lovable. Okay, there's a third truth, and we know this one. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God gave. That's what true love does. It gives for the sake of those who are loved. For God so loved the world that he gave. John says this is how we know what love is. God gave. God sent his son. So he he loved us first. He loved us when we were not lovable, not worthy of his love. And, and he, he proves the depth of his love, demonstrated that with the gift of his son. This to me is just another huge wow. He paid the price that his holy character demands. He put the price of our sin on his son. The words that John uses, atoning sacrifice, it's a great phrase in the original language. It really suggests the idea of the only thing that could be done to take care of the problem. There was no other way for our sins to be atoned. Remember John, when he saw Jesus coming, 
John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I've always heard in that statement a sense that, that perhaps was given to John prophetically of, Ah, oh, finally, something that will work. Because the history of sacrifice that was so much a part of the Jewish tradition was a system that never really atoned for sin. It always pointed into the future to the perfect lamb who would someday, in his perfect sacrifice, take away the sin of the world. Jesus' death on the cross, my brothers and sisters, is not just another way to God. It is the only way to God. And that started because he was born. Okay, here's my truth number four. Now don't laugh. I think you're, gonna, you're just going to appreciate how deeply profound this is. If God could have done it any other way, then it seems to me he would have. But the plan of salvation that we understand is the plan of salvation that needed to happen. And it started with a baby. This for me has been probably the greatest wow in this entire week. Because here's what I think we do. I think that we recognize in the Advent season and we celebrate the birth of the baby. And then, at least in my mind, and maybe you do this too, because the birth of the baby is so incredibly important to the man who would, or, or, or the, the baby that would, would grow to become the man who would hang on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to be that atoning sacrifice, we, we jump from the baby to Jesus, the Redeemer. And I don't know if I've ever asked the question, which I have asked often this week, and I still don't know the answer to, why did it start with a baby? Why did it start with a baby? We hear the words of the writer of Hebrews say to us that Jesus is the final and clearest revelation that we have of the character of God. He says that that Jesus is the divine radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What is the process of the infinite packing himself into a small little child to be born into a scary, frightening, dangerous world say about the character of God. Are you with me? It's amazing. It's just Emmanuel, God with us. 
God with us. And, and, and again, I admittedly think to myself, Jesus in his adult life, God with us. And yet those words were spoken and prophesied in Isaiah five, six hundred years before about the baby who would be born. God with us. God in the form of a little baby. What does that say to us about the character of God? I love what J.R. Packer writes. He says, you know, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, though that is unbelievable, nor does it lie in the Easter message of resurrection. That again, incredible. Packer says, it lies in the Christmas message of incarnation. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of incarnation. As you consider in this final week of Advent, that baby who was lying in the manger, think to yourself, the infinite God who has taken on the form of a very finite helpless human being. I love what Keller says about this. There is no way to have a real relationship without becoming vulnerable to hurt. And here, I think, is maybe the best explanation for why the baby. Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. It's kind of weird, isn't it, to think about that? Because I don't think of God as breakable and fragile. But if I don't think of Jesus as breakable and fragile, then I'm not thinking of Jesus as God, and that's who he was, laying in the manger. Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. God became someone we can hurt. Why? To get us back, says Tim Keller. No other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism, Islam, believes that God became breakable or suffered or had a body. There's such mystery in that. Because that baby is the one whom Paul writes to the Colossians, by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so he did all of that and then became a part of his creation for us. That's a wow. That is a big wow. How do you pack the infinite 
into such a tiny package. Jesus, the superior, the clear revelation of God. We look at his life and we look at his teachings and we see and understand more clearly the character of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But let's not too quickly jump to the adult life without properly celebrating the miracle of the infant birth. The God-man who came to this earth to live among us. As Philip Yancey says, he put on flesh and moved into our neighborhood. I love that. God understanding completely what it means to live and to struggle as humans. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. Think of the temptations that that are a part of your life. Jesus was similarly tempted, and yet he was without sin. The writer of Hebrews also tells us, you know, we don't worship a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's because he put on our flesh and he lived and he walked among us. It's all stuff that we know, isn't it? I guess my prayer for this morning has been just some reminders, perhaps in a way, that make us think again, oh my, what an amazing thing God has done for us. Amazing truth, amazing mystery, amazing God. Praise team, come on up and prepare to to lead us as we close this morning. Brothers and sisters, I hope, I hope that in this this final week of Advent, and even in the days of of Christmas tide that come after Christmas Day, that uh, you'll be intentional about finding some time in the busyness of this season to reflect again on the miracle that that baby was for us. The presence of God in a manger. The presence of God in a vulnerable place. The presence of God in an unsafe place. The presence of God as, as he grew and, and, and lived his human life like we have all lived our human lives. The presence of God come for us ultimately to be an atonement for our sin. The only thing that would work started with that infant in the manger. Real life God. Amen.